Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald in my hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. Yes, John, this week we were both at the annual Education Writers Association Conference, as you say, in Baltimore. Several hundred journalists showed up. One encouraging aspect is that there's still quite a lot of education journalists out there and all very enthusiastic about reporting on what's happening across the nation. It is encouraging. They're not all working for traditional newspapers the way you and I did in the past, but many of them are doing good work in nonprofit institutions like EdSource. One of the prominent features of this year's program was the appearance of Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. She had been asked a couple of times before and turned it down. She was the first secretary in memory that had not appeared before the Education Writers Association, which was founded 72 years ago. So this year, she decided to appear. She made some brief comments, and she was interviewed by Erica Green, who is an education reporter for the New York Times. Secretary DeVos did get in some zingers at the press, suggesting that she had been kind of beaten up unfairly and was being used as clickbait to, uh, I guess, attract viewers. Uh, But this is what she had to say. I've followed all of your reporting, and I appreciate all that you do as journalists. The simple truth is, I never imagined I'd be a focus of your coverage. I don't enjoy the publicity that comes with my position. I don't love being up on stage, nor any kind of platform. I I am an introvert. And as much as many in the media use my name as clickbait, or try to make it all about me, it's not. Education is not about Betsy DeVos, nor about any other individual. It's about students. The sum and substance of her remarks was a continued defense of choice. School choice, student choice, family choice, which she thinks journalists don't understand. Let's stop and rethink the definition of public education. Today, it's often defined as one type of school funded by taxpayers, controlled by government. But if every student is part of the public, then every way and every place a student learns is ultimately of benefit to the public. That should be the new definition of public education. John, I'd say the main focus of her speech, which relates to the school choice issue, was promoting something called education freedom scholarships. And that involves companies, corporations, so on, getting tax credits of up to $5 billion. And then those monies would be sent to the states to pretty much use any way they want to. Almost. It's a more latitude than it had been in previous incarnations, which was basically just a voucher system. This is a little different. Wait, the voucher system? You mean like in Florida, where it's been tried in some states? That's exactly right, where companies or individuals give money and that goes towards private school tuition or religious schools of students who want to attend. Well, it's scholarships money yes. to be used for those schools. Exactly. This, she says, is a little different in that states will have a lot more latitude in terms of what it can use the money for. Maybe after school programs, transportation, even dual college enrollment with community colleges. So she said. And if this actually ever happened, California could get about $500 million. Big if, I think, because it's dead on arrival in the Democratic House for sure. Although, you know, what she was saying is take a look at it first, see what you think before judging it. 
Well, let's just hear a couple of words from uh, Secretary DeVos on the so-called Freedom Scholarships. Education Freedom Scholarships aren't only for students who want to attend private schools. In fact, some states may choose to design scholarships for public school options, such as apprenticeships or dual enrollment or transportation to a different public school. Each state has the opportunity to be really imaginative and to serve the unique needs of students in their state. Keep in mind, Lewis, that she's not proposing additional money for traditional schools, even Title I for poor kids, more money for early education. It's not on the Trump agenda. In fact, he always proposes cuts, as he has again, and the House has to restore what he proposes. This is in addition to that because it really is in line with her view that things need to change and the way to do it is school choice. There were a lot of people who were not sure what to expect, but maybe approaching her presentation with some skepticism. But what was really, I think, disappointing was that basically what she said was unchanged from the kind of the basic mantra around school choice that she came into office with two years ago. There was nothing sort of significantly different from that, even though, of course, there's been zero progress on that front over the last two years. So it didn't indicate any sort of rethinking of the basic ideas or strategies that they came to office with. No, at least I guess one can say she's being consistent with where she was before she came to be Secretary of, of Education and remains that way. And then again, as we know, education has not been a priority of President Trump, so he simply proposes cuts in the budget, Democratic House restores it, and it's status quo. And before we let we move on from Secretary DeVos, she did make some comments about charter schools. We want people to think very broadly of what introducing more choices to students could mean and for states to think very creatively about what kinds of new opportunities they could make available to their students. That was Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who got a polite hearing at the Education Writers Conference in Baltimore, where we are broadcasting from this week. One of the things about the conference this week, compared to previous years, it was taking a somewhat larger view. The focus was on student well-being the whole child approach, which I think is getting a bit of a boost as a result of the Every Student Succeeds Act and the focus on using multiple measures to assess how students are doing. As well as great concern about school safety. And the Johns Hopkins University School of Education, which is co-sponsoring the event we're attending, took the opportunity of announcing that it will form a Center for Safe and Healthy Schools, which will examine school safety and life post-Parkland massacre and school and student health and wellness. And Lewis, you went to an interesting discussion with the focus was, of all things, on California. Yes, uh, there was a, a presentation on California's uh, reforms, really dramatic reforms of remedial education in higher education, and specifically focusing on AB 705, that's Assembly Bill 705, which is going into effect this fall and will really mandate dramatic changes in remedial education. Yeah, I'm assuming there's a great deal of interest nationally as to what California is doing in remedial ed. Yes, not only in nationally, but in California. There's a lot of work going on right now because the fall is obviously just a few months away. And this has to be implemented in 114 community colleges. We did talk with Katie Hearn, who is executive director of the California Acceleration Project, which is looking at how to accelerate students' paths 
through the community colleges and into four-year universities. She's been tracking this very closely, and we asked her how things are going on that front. Right now is the time when colleges are really hustling. Colleges are trying to completely change how they approach incoming students from how they place them into English and math courses to the courses that they offer. What does that mean? That this fall there will be no remedial classes in California community colleges? So what the law requires is that it, first it requires community colleges to stop using standardized placement tests to determine whether a student is ready for college or not. We are required to look at their high school grades, um, particularly their GPA and what math classes they took in high school, and use that to determine whether they are ready for transfer level, college level courses in English and math. The other thing it does is it puts limits on colleges requiring students to enroll in remedial math and English courses and, and blocking their access to college level English and math. We will see then in the fall how successful this is, at least in terms of the implementation. But how are things going? I think they're going relatively well overall. The law has, I would say overall, has encouraged colleges to change practices that have been in place for decades and, and that were ineffective. You know, to sort of, so the law was really a catalyst for letting go of practices that we've been using for a long time, but that were not good for students. There's 114 community colleges, so I imagine yeah. there's a lot of variation. Now, yes. there was also a fair amount of resistance to this initially. Yes. So what's happened to the resistance? What are you seeing out there? The regulations on the law are pretty tight around requiring students to take remedial courses. And so I think we'll see across the state a fairly high level of compliance around colleges, not not forcing students to take remedial courses and not blocking them from enrolling in transferable college level courses. So that's, that's the good news. What the law doesn't prohibit is offering remedial courses. And so that's a kind of a gray area that we're seeing some colleges kind of want to inhabit where they say, well, you can enroll in a transferable college math course, but one college, I'm going to leave them nameless, their online assessment page says, we strongly recommend that you take this remedial class below transfer level. Or other colleges are allowing students to choose where they place themselves, but describing the college level course as very challenging and encouraging students to enroll in remedial courses one or two levels below. And so it's even if they're not requiring it, I think, and then they, they're continuing to offer a lot of sections of remedial courses. And so what that means is students who have a legal right to enroll in the transfer level college course may not actually be able to get a spot because the college doesn't have enough sections because they're using their resources to still offer a lot of remedial sections. So I think that's going to be that's going to be the place where we see the most a uh, little shaky implementation of AB 705 of colleges really wanting to hold on to their old remedial structures, despite the law saying that we need to get students to begin in the math and English course that gives them the best possible chance of completion. And the research is really clear about that, that we, we have yet to identify a single student group that has higher completion if they start in a remedial course below transfer level college English and math. Talking with Katie Hearn, Executive Director of the California Acceleration Project. We caught up with Katie in a hotel in Baltimore, so that's some of the background noise you are hearing. So the new courses require teachers to be able to teach to a range of students. And we're getting a couple comments from InterEd source from 
from instructors who are saying many of the students who are coming are way behind in math and it requires this huge range of teaching that it's really difficult to do. To implement this well, I do think we need to provide professional development to faculty to help them teach a broad range of students who are in their class. I think it helps faculty to know that uh, the research showing that no student does better starting in a remedial class. That was Katie Hearn, Executive Director of the California Acceleration Project. This week in California, Governor Newsom issued his May revision of his budget for next year. You can read our reports of the changes he is proposing on edsource.org. We'll get back to these in more detail next week. And one of the significant parts of the May revision is that there is more money. And California has a bigger surplus, and of course some of that goes to schools. This is what Governor Newsom said about the record amounts of funding going to public schools and education generally. Here's some good news. Uh, I said this in January, I get to say it again. Uh, we will have the highest investment in our K-14 education system in California history. Uh, it is not $80.7 billion uh, as it was in January. It's $81.1 billion. One thing that Governor Newsom is reviving or wants to revive is a loan forgiveness program for teachers who go into hard-to-fill areas such as special education and STEM. He's going to ask the legislature to put about $90 million into this program. Pretty big deal because a lot of people, including Linda Darling-Hammond, who is now president of the State Board of Education, have been pushing for for quite a few years. Governor Newsom made a big deal about his so-called parents' agenda and is calling for additional funds for subsidized childcare for low-income children. On the post-secondary front, he wants the legislature to put in about $10 million more for emergency housing for college students. That would bring the total amount to about $40 million for emergency housing. He did not, however, go along with calls to radically increase the amount of funding going for Cal Grants to help pay for living expenses for college students. As I mentioned, we will talk about this in our next podcast. So before we sign off from Baltimore, EdSource did get some nice recognition of its work here. Yeah, it was a real highlight for me, other than to see the Baltimore Orioles play at Camden Yards, but that's another issue. We received a data visualization. It was a new award for the way that EdSource displayed its maps and data in a way that readers could understand in our series, The Tainted Taps. And that was a series that looked at lead in water in schools in California, full of data, full of vital information for readers. Yeah, nice uh, recognition, but more importantly, it uh, is drawing attention to this issue, which has not really received enough attention, that uh, schools in California are all being tested. By the end of next month, they will all have to be retested to measure lead levels in drinking water. The big issue is whether the current standard, which is 15 parts per billion of lead, that's the federal level at which school districts are required to take action, is too high whether the level should be lower because as we all know by now 
no lead levels are safe in water. So question is for school districts, should they be taking action even at levels below 15 parts per billion? Exactly. So as we sign off, let us say congratulations to Rose Ciotta, Justin Allen, Sunny She, Nico Savage, Danny Willis, who crunched the numbers, and uh, others on the team who contributed in various ways. And that just about wraps it up for This Week in California Education, brought to you by Source Radio. Thanks to our producer, Kobe McDonald, who'll be trying to put all of this together. And thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Beckel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Music is by Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in California next week. Mm-hmm.